night I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board that's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? Got some big, 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 big Patreon news to share. So we have established a new user reward for our Patreon subscribers. So here's the deal. If you subscribe at any level and support the show financially, again, any level, there is the chance that I might marry you. I mean, that's, that is quite a reward. However, I am sad to report the bonus has already been claimed. Oh, damn. Alas. You know, one lucky patron, I guess. That was quite, quite, a, quite a bit of bang for their buck. Whew. Fun week, fun week, fun week. And in other news, I think we've settled on this, thanks to our good buddy Rob. Once we hit 50 backers, we, we haven't hit the 20 yet, but, but I feel confident that we will. And, and listen, you listeners are our best friends in this effort. Tell your friends, right? Share, share the show with a friend and tell them to share with one of their other friends, not with you because you already listened, so they don't need to share it with you. But once we, of course, hit 20 backers, we're going to rank the, uh, the Star Trek movies, which, by the way, we could do. When that brand new fancy uh, 4K set hits in the fall, uh, at least we'll have the original. Well, we'll have to we'll have to decide which version of motion picture uh, we're going to rank because there are there are three now uh, easily available on home media. But anyway, so that's what we do when we hit 20. When we hit 50, which I believe in my heart of hearts is an attainable goal. We're going to rank Ernest. All of the theatrical films, aside from Ernest Goes to Africa, which I'm just going to pretend didn't happen. Uh, and then some of his, uh, of his television show, because again, he won an Emmy for that. So uh, things to look forward to. And if any of you out there are wondering what the Batman connection here is, well, one, it's Patreon bonus content that doesn't need to be. But two, do remember that in Ernest Scared Stupid, Eartha Kitt has a featured role. That's right. She sure does. And there we go. That's the, the, the <laughs> a tenuous but absolute Batman connection. Uh, and let's see, for, for Star Trek, of course, William Shatner was the voice of Harvey Dent in the 66 Two-Face animated movie. There's got to be other connections, oh, I'm yeah. sure. I'm, I'm trying to... some. Oh, Brent Spiner voiced the Joker on Young Justice and on Audio Adventure. There you go. Patrick Stewart probably likes Batman. I'm sure if I sat back and thought about it hard enough, there are other members of the Next Gen cast who have done voice work. Michael Dorn, voice of Calabac, son of Darkseid, on the Justice League cartoon. The connections abound. I'm sure if I sat back and I thought about it more, I could find more. But... We'll get to that when we get those, you know, 20 backers. Come on, folks. You know you want to hear Matt and Will spend two hours talking about Star Trek movies. You know you want to. 
But Star Trek takes place in space. And speaking of tenuous connections and segues. Oh, subtle. Yep. Uh, this week, we are going cosmic in three stories where Batman wields a power ring. Our first story of the night is Batman Universe, uh, published initially in Batman Giant, Volume 1, numbers 3 to 14, and then as Batman Universe, numbers 1 to 6. The writer is Brian Michael Bendis, pencils by Nick Darrington, inks by Darrington, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Josh Reed, editor Jamie S. Rich, and Brittany Halser. Cover date, November 2018 through October 2019. A seemingly simple Riddler caper sends Batman on a journey through space and time, teaming up with heroes of different ages and worlds, trying to solve the mystery of a Fabergé egg and what it contains. So some of that just initial publication stuff here. This was originally published during DC's short-ish lived, probably two-year attempt to do comics exclusive to Walmart, or at least initially released in Walmart. And this was in the Batman Giant uh, from, as I said, issues three to 14. Each issue of Universe, the floppies, contained two chapters. But I read it in those initial Walmart releases because the only thing that could get me into Walmart were Batman stories that I couldn't get anywhere else. What a dumbass distribution strategy, right? Comic book exclusives to Walmart that appeal only to comic book nerds who flock to the Walmarts and grab up the copies and do nothing to expose the books to a new audience. So fucking stupid. And the, I mean, the reprints in the back were not terrible, or not in the back. I mean, the majority of the book was reprints. It was three reprints and then 16 pages of initial original content in each. The reprints were not overly new reader friendly, as I recall, either. This was not a terribly well thought out initiative. And of the, the handful of books they did, Universe is probably the most new reader friendly. The Wonder Woman one was not. Tom King's Superman Up in the Sky, I remember liking, but that was also A, before I soured on a lot of Tom King. So I'd have to go back and reread it and see if it stands up or not. But was Tom King high concept Tom King? This wasn't grounded superhero Tom King. Not that there's a lot of that. And the Titans one, I don't remember anything particularly jumping out at me in that one. I did enjoy the, the Gail Simone Flash stuff, though. That was fun. But uh, on to this book. So we started and I want to let Will start on this one because <laughs> I, I take it from something we initially said off mic. Your, your feelings on Bendis aren't exactly the highest, Will? So I, I tweeted this and as I, I did a, a screenshot as I was you know, doing my read and it's just one of Bendis's things, right? He likes he likes this quippy dialogue, the speech balloons that go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's a fucking chore to read. It's charming in just little bitty spots. But when you sit down to do 120 pages of it, it's exhausting. So this might be one of the few occasions where a serialized book read better serialized because sitting down to to read this thing as a whole was a chore 
Bendis is the voice of the MCU. He is lighthearted, silly, funny, quippy dialogue. Again, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, words upon words upon words upon words. And that can work. That really can work. It does have its charms. But this just ran it into the ground for me. When Batman is talking to himself endlessly as he is perhaps dying in Crime Alley, you've, you have lost the thread. When that's, when that's a lighthearted, silly moment, you've lost it. So it was a bit on the exhausting slash chore side for me to answer your question. I will, since you brought up that scene, yes, that bit with Bruce dying in Crime Alley does rattle on a bit, but the last two or three balloons there are really good. I really like, A, the fact that he's regretting not getting to tell Alfred that he loves him and that his final thought is, I hope Green Lantern's okay. In the end, the last thing he thinks of is he hopes someone else is all right. He's not thinking about himself in the end. I think that's bad. And, and, and you're absolutely right. A good editor looks at that page and says, hey, Brian, that's your good stuff. Cut all of this other bullshit. Focus on those endpoints there. That's stronger. That's an actual beat of emotion and feeling. And look, this is a book for kids. All right, that's that's the whole idea behind putting this thing in Walmart is getting it in the hands of 10, 12, 14, 15 year olds. And this book is lighthearted and silly for the most part. Lots of action, lots of crazy nonsense. And again, that's that can't work. But if you're going to do that scene, it's got to have some feeling and it's got to have some emotion and it can't be buried under Bendisian nonsense. Bendis picks a few characters here, I feel, that work in his voice. I don't know how much Batman does. Batman, he seems to get the character of Batman as in that moment, some of the others. But again, his Batman's a little chattier than I generally go for my Batman. However, quippy back and forth Rye works for Alfred. I think oh, yeah. Alfred reads well as do both Green Arrow and Nightwing, who are also both characters that tend to have that sort of dialogue. They're, they don't shut up. They have, you know, smart-ass answers for everything. So I think Bendis, in general, picked characters set around Bruce who worked better in his voice. One of these things you've got to go back and you've got to remember, when it was announced that Bendis was coming to D.C., Everyone assumed that Batman was where he was going because this is a guy who's known for Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. Superman was not the character that people thought Bendis was going to be spending all his time writing in the Legion. So this was, okay, this is what people were expecting. They were expecting a Batman story from Bendis. And this is not the Batman story people expected from Bendis. High cosmic weirdness. People were expecting grounded gritty noir batman and this is about as far from that as you can get this is an episode of brave and the bold not an episode of batman the animated series that is a good way to look at it and another complaint i had with this 
you know, this is this is an episode about about Batman wearing a power ring. It had to be at least two thirds of the way into the book before we got to that point. It was a big, long road to get there. Yeah, I believe it. Well, yeah, two thirds. It was in issue five of six that the ring finally pops up. Before that, I mean, it is this mystery of this Fabergé egg more than that. And Riddler and a Vandal Savage who is artistically inconsistent. And I'm not sure if that was a time travel thing or what, where sometimes he's paunchy and balding and sometimes he's more svelte with long hair. And they're both in the present and there's there's a lot of time travel. I'm not sure if there's two Vandal Savages. I, I got a little confused by that and I'm not sure if that was... Darrington just changing the design on Savage at some point in the series, or if there is more story and I just kind of missed it amongst what was going on. I think I liked this more than you did. Well, I, I enjoyed this for what it is for it being big and loud and fun. Is it one of my greatest Batman stories ever told? No, but I also admittedly have a high Bendis tolerance. I'm not entirely sure why. And I also like all of the DCU deep cuts. And uh, I think we'll get to the art. Nick Darrington does a great friggin' job on pretty much anything he touches. But this is real pretty in a lot of places. Most places. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this over the course of the night think this book probably had the best constructs. And if we're doing lantern stories, we need to have cool looking constructs in here. The Batman like lantern suit, pretty cool. I love the bit on Dinosaur Island where Jordan conjures King Kong to fight a T-Rex. I thought that was a, a great moment of construct. I wonder how much of this was completely collaborative where Bendis was like, hey, what things in the DC universe have you always wanted to draw? And Darren's like, I want to draw Dinosaur Island. And so Bendis is like, sure, I'll do a scene on Dinosaur Island. Or I want Hawk people. So there's a bit on Thanagar. That could have been Ran. That could have been New Genesis. It could have been any planet, really. But it felt like, okay, the Hawk people look cool. So I'm going to do Thanagar. Rule of cool plays a lot in this book. Gorilla City. I mean, if you're going to do Gorilla City, Gorilla City is there because Gorilla City is awesome. And you get to draw a whole bunch of gorillas hanging out with Batman. Doing gorilla stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, some Jonah Hex. I don't think we've ever talked about Hex on this podcast. That and we have not. Despite, you know, the, the various problematic elements of Hex wearing the Confederate uniform that I'm really kind of wagering we're going to see less and less of in the character if he pops up again anytime soon. I really like the character of Jonah Hex. I think he's a fascinating early example of anti-hero in comics and a character that is maintained being a true anti-hero throughout his existence. He's never softened to hero or gone villain. He's always remained completely in an anti-hero model And while he comes out of the spaghetti Westerns, out of the point where Westerns weren't about black hats and white hats anymore, he's been given a lot of nuance over the years. And 
I think we will eventually cover some of All-Star Western, the most recent volume where Hex got sent to the present and did wind up in Gotham for a while. But the Palmiotti and Gray run of Jonah Hex in Jonah Hex and All-Star Western has some tremendous stuff in it. The artists that they work with, because it's all short form stories. There's one six issue arc over 60 something issues in that first run, maybe even 70. But most of them are no more than three issue arcs and a lot of one offs. And I mean, you've got a single issue by J.H. Williams. You've got two single issues by Darwin Cook. You have an issue by Eduardo Rizzo. You have Phil Noto does a couple. That's, that's But the art on those Jonah Hex issues are just it's just tremendous and we will eventually hopefully for bonus content cover the justice league two-part of the once in future thing where batman john stewart and uh, wonder woman get bounced around through time and wind up teaming up with jonah hex and a bunch of other western heroes and it's one of my favorite two-parters on that series assuming you could have done something that wasn't problematic with the character his inclusion in Blue, the Gray, and the Bat would not have made that book any worse. True. That, <laughs> there are a, there's a lot of Western characters in the DC pantheon that I would have liked to have seen pop up in Blue, the Gray, and the Bat. But Hex, as eventually as a Confederate deserter, which is what he became. That's what worked. I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. He, he does desert eventually. But yeah, that's uh, that's a good call. I would have liked, I think that would have helped that book. This is, I mean, you said it, I mean, a kid's book. This is a great introductory book to give to tweens, somewhere in that 10 to 12 range. I think younger than that, it's too wordy. And an older teen will be like, oh, this is silly. But it's got that, that it hits that sweet spot in the early YA area that I think would really work. And by the way, one of my favorite lines, and it's just something that made me happy, Batman loves dinosaurs. Hal Jordan says that, (laughs) happy. And that is absolutely the title of this episode because Batman loves dinosaurs. Matt loves dinosaurs. So another thing that I have in common with Batman. Have you have you seen my cave? I I have a dinosaur in the cave. I I love dinosaurs. Batman loves dinosaurs. Rar. <laughs> and I mean, you get to the end, and by the end, you've got future ninjas and the Greenland, the entire Green Lantern Corps fighting. The final chapter, I feel like, needed more room to breathe. The fact that we suddenly briefly for six pages, wind up in a world without Batman. That's something I wish we could have unpacked for a chapter or two. And I also got to wonder if there was a character that was ever made for the Bendis quippiness, it's the Riddler. Oh, yeah. He should talk like a Bendis character. And because of the influence of the power ring inside this Fabergé egg, he's sort of dumbed down. So he's not rambling on like he normally does boy i felt like that was a waste of the riddler from a writer like bendis because it bendis's riddler should just talk non-stop and irritate the hell out of everyone around him yeah and i think this book would have been stronger if 
the villain, the big bad had remained Riddler throughout the book. Like Riddler's introduced in the first couple of chapters. And then you learn that, you know, Vandal Savage is the guy controlling the Riddler. And then Riddler just basically goes away for the bulk of the book. And it, it, it would have worked better exactly for the reason that you say, like you could have had that fun, zany, creative voice. You could have had Riddler getting access to the power ring instead of, you know, Vandal Savage briefly. You could have had Riddler trying to stand against the the Lantern Corps. Like those would have been, you know, more fun than I think ultimately what we saw here. Batman and Vandal Savage. I have a thing with Batman and Vandal Savage. And I have a problem with Vandal Savage at this point in the same way that I have a problem with Darkseid. DC does not have a deep bench of world beaters. And so certain villains repeatedly come up. Anytime you get an event, it seems like DC often is trying to introduce some new world beater and that character doesn't take off. So suddenly Darkseid becomes the center of whatever the next event is. There are numerous immortals wandering around the DC universe. But do you know how many friggin' characters are Vandal Savage's eternal nemesis who has been fighting him for centuries? The Immortal Man, Resurrection Man, Hawkman, Batman when he was lost in time during the Grant Morrison run. I would have liked to see some other immortal character pop up here. And I don't Raish. entirely know. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't entirely know why this wasn't Ra's al Ghul, except maybe Bendis thought that was too obvious that everyone would expect Raish to be this kind of thing. So you'll use Vandal Savage instead. But you, you could have dug through and found some other immortal to, to drop into this place. I, I do want to swing back to the art because there is some absolutely astounding art. Darrington draws some two-page spreads that are stunning, especially in issue five. I probably should have broken the issue down better in my notes, where Batman and Nightwing invade Vandal Savage's submarine. And there is a series of panels, not even panels, this is a spread, but it's Batman and Nightwing fighting their way through the sub and you're tracking them with your eyes and it's really gorgeous and it's really well thought out you get a lot of cover gallery art in the back and it is really stunning to look at without the trade dress yeah as i said i had this in the walmart so i didn't have any of the the really nice reproductions yesterday I was in a shop in Philadelphia and they had a big rack of these trades and hardcovers, 30% off. And I was like, oh, there's universe and it's 30% off. Okay. So I, I got to look through all that, the trade dressless covers today. And I was like, Ooh, that's really pretty. Yeah. Uh, Comixology was having a similar sale. I had gotten the first two issues of this and never read them. And it was cheaper to just buy the trade than to the, get the remaining four. So that's, uh, that's how I ended up with this nice co- uh, cover gallery. Gorilla City. There's also a gorgeous double page spread of Gorilla City. Dinosaur Island. Loves me some Dinosaur Island. Matt loves dinosaurs. Batman fighting Vandal Savage through time and the DC universe. Yes. All of the different little bits up to and including the atomic Knights and their riding Dalmatians from the great disaster era. And I think that's earth 
17 at this point. That's one of the Earths. The old school Superman on that. Oh, by the way, the museum at the end where Bruce returns the Fabergé egg to, the Flugelheim, that is the name of the museum from 89 that the Joker rips up during the Party Man sequence. And the ballerina statue is there. As we are on the eve of writing our Bat Chat column, where we will discuss the final issue of the 89 miniseries. So Duh. it's in it's on a, my mind. It's a big column tomorrow. Uh, we got uh, Big Daddy Zadarsky making his uh, Batman debut. We got 89 and we got the climax of Joker, right? Ooh. That's just good, good day for reading. I, as I say now, not having read the books, I hope they're good. Uh, Please don't good. spoil me in the future uh, if they're not good. I can't imagine after... Like, oh, please, Tiny, do not miss. You, you got to stick this landing. I mean, you've stuck 14 issues. Don't trip on 15. Please. Surprise. Ghostmaker saves the day. <laughs> no, I'd rather not. <laughs> oh, I also, speaking of the art, I love the, the first few pages of the book, which are from Batman's point of view as he's driving the Batmobile and climbing a building. I like that visual choice before it switches to sort of third person as Batman appears in a big splash and the final page of, of the entire volume it's another big splash of Batman doing Batman stuff whatever else you gotta say Darrington slays in this book and I do not know what if Bendis writes in full script or Marvel style the amount of Marvel he's done I have to imagine it's plot first but I can't be sure, but if, if he's writing full script, he's playing to Darrington's strengths. That's for sure. Poor artists having to account for all of these goddamn word balloons. That's one of the things that I've got to wonder about. If, if Bendis does do Marvel style, do you leave large amounts of negative space when you're writing for someone like Bendis, knowing that there's going to be a lot of words? I, I, I am not an artist, so I cannot tell you. One final art note, a great splash right before that two-page spread of DC history as Bruce gets his memories back and you get a single-page splash of Bruce with rogues and allies in the background on a red background as he remembers Batman. I'm Batman. Yeah. I want more Darrington Batman. And I mean, the, the power ring, by the by, I guess we should probably talk about the power ring a little more that was hidden inside the Fabergé egg, a, a white lantern ring, but not that white lantern ring, is a MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin for the first four and a half issues and then becomes more of an active plot device, but still is really just something for them to fight over. It serves a real purpose in the last issue. But it feels like there could have been other things that could have been used to do that kind of thing. I don't know. It felt more like a cosmic cube from over in Marvel than a power ring. This sort of reality rewriting thing, which is not something power rings have a tendency to do. Yeah, yeah. We're kind of stretching the boundaries of what the ring should and shouldn't be able to. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the Green Lantern scholar, but... Once you have established a thing that can travel through time, can travel through universes, can scramble people's brains, can then 
choose the wearers, but the programming is faulty. You know, you've kind of overtaken the plumbing a little bit. But I, I really like the idea that, yeah, it was basically a, a proto ring. And as you said, it's not the white ring, and but you can still work in like the white imagery, the rainbow, the spectrum stuff. The colors in these moments were quite nice. Oh, yeah. When Bruce is in the, the void inside the ring, and it's mostly white, the kind of faded, swirling rainbows around him. Dave Stewart does a great job on the colors oh, in this book. Oh, think of that. Dave, Dave Stewart doing a good job on colors. Shock of shocks, right? That man gets around. I, I don't understand how he maintains the quality of his work. But boy, howdy, does he ever. I'm not does gonna, he ever? I'm not going to complain on that front. I don't think I have much of anything else here. I don't have anything else, so that means it's time to put Batman Universe on the big board. Okay, everyone, we are at 135 stories on the big board. Woo! Story number one is Batman Year One, Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Story number 25 is Cheer from Batman Urban Legends, numbers one to six. Number 50 is Blood Secrets from Detective Comics Annual number two. Coming in at 69 is Batman, Sword of Azrael. Nice. Number 75 is Super Heavy from Batman Volume 2, numbers 41 to 50. Down at number 100 is Luthor, You're Driving Me Sane from Joker Volume 1, number 7. 125 is The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, the very first Batman story from Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 27. And all the way at the bottom, Batman White Knight. All right. So where are we thinking? You've softened me on this. Your goodwill and charity have made me not like this a bit less. And I think considering the rest of the books of the night, I, I think this is the best book of the night. It's, it's all down here, uh, downhill from here, folks. Sorry. Uh, I'm thinking dead center. Somewhere right around the, the 50s, 60s range. Yeah, yeah, I could go for that. Probably more the 60s than the 50s. Like, mm. Well, if we put it below 61, that means we got to put it below the killing joke. You know, I don't want to do that. Uh, well, well, we're going to have to get beyond putting things below the killing joke. I mean... Again, you got to do have to take into account just how gorgeous the Brian Boland art is in the Killing Joke. And that Matt, look- Matt, Matt, look, you're not you're not my real dad. I, you can't make me do anything. <laughs> and that the core concept of the Killing Joke, it, it's all the trappings of the Killing Joke that are the problem in the actual story. The core concept is a really good concept. All right, logging on to Twitter right now. Matt loves the killing joke. Matt does More not love it. the killing joke. Do not put that on me. Uh, okay. In, in kind of a strange way, this is kind of reminiscent of the untold legend of the Batman in that it is for a wide audience. It is trying to do untold legend of the batman is not necessarily trying to do a lot of things but it's trying to streamline and present a cohesive story and in this book it's introducing 
are not introducing, but bringing in a lot of these cosmic concepts and trying to tell uh, a new reader friendly version of, of a big cosmic Batman story. So maybe not siblings, but they, they feel like cousins to me. So I do think we're in the right range. I think it's a little below that. Okay. So my money here is the new 65 that puts it below that post-Christ's origin of Jason Todd, which is a foundational bit of Jason Todd. And it has some good emotional beats, some good, a lot of good character. And above trust, which is the Zatanna Joker story from Detective, which is fun and has some cool beats to it, but is a trifle. There is a little bit of, you know, Bruce and Zatanna coming to a piece after the events of Identity Crisis, but that's dealing with the fallout of identity crisis. And I don't know how much anybody wants to talk about that. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Paul Dini writing Zatanna. So it's nothing special. Yeah, you can, you can find that, you know, any day of the week. So I, I'm thinking the new number 65. Sounds good to me. Now, is it Batman colon universe or just Batman universe? Colon. Batman colon universe. Colon's very important. Apparently the uh, Wikipedia feud was legendary, whether uh, Star Trek colon into darkness or Star Trek into darkness. Huh. Which is probably the nicest thing I can say about that movie. Back is on Patreon. Find out more. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I can't remember what it was, but a couple nights, a couple mornings ago, I woke up and I started scrolling through Twitter and I realized something and I don't know what it says about me that I cannot bring myself to love or even like the majority of people that I know as much as so many people on Twitter hate fictional characters and comic book creators they've never met. Am I dead inside or are people just monsters on Twitter? Or is it a little bit of both? It, it could be. I, I think I could have a really interesting conversation with Sean Gordon Murphy. It wouldn't exactly be respectful, I think, at points because I would I'd say that you, sir, are a moron. I don't know why you feel you have the ability to write the things that you do. You clearly cannot. I'm, I'm really impressed with your gumption. It's something we should all strive for. But, you know, it'd be fun to watch him kind of defend his work. Uh, I've always said that if I ever find myself in some kind of Make-A-Wish deal, it's going to be watching Star Trek Into Darkness with J.J. Abrams. And he's going to sit there as, I, as I'm on my deathbed. And I'm going to look at him and say, why did you do this? Why does no one know who Khan is in this world? He was a legendary mass murderer and dictator. Why does Spock have to video conference call Spock? Why? Again, that is a little preview of what y'all will get <laughs> when you back that Patreon. So back that Patreon. But our next story is In Darkest Night. This is Batman in Darkest Night, written by Mike W. Barr, with art by Jerry Bingham, colors by Digital Chameleon, letters by Pat Rousseau, edited by Kevin Dooley and Eddie Berganza. Cover date, February of 1994. In this classic Elseworlds, instead of the bat flying into Bruce Wayne's study, a Green Lantern ring does, creating a fusion of the two heroes as this Green Lantern searches for his parents' killer 
and faces a series of familiar fused villains. Uh, start off, problematic creator watch. Eddie Berganza, noted sex creep. Asshole. Yep. And this is our, not our first warning about Berganza tonight. So, yeah, he'll be back. Wait, 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 wait. Is 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 the third book exceptionally cursed? Oh, is it ever? Oh my is god. It? it might be the most cursed thing we've read. Yeah, pretty sure it is. Jesus. We will, we will get to that. God almighty. First up, just as a particular reminder, this is the exact same creative team, uh, or at least writer artist for Son of the Demon. Yeah, that was mentioned on the um, ad copy uh, from the creators of Batman, Son of the Demon, a frightening look at a world that might have been. Don't know about frightening, but they were creators of Son of the Demon. Frightening implies more horror than we get here. And this was not a horror book. Yeah, and not even like a moral horror like we see that in the next book we see you know the the power ring going to bruce at the wrong moment in his life and the disastrous consequences that arise from that but this is i don't know to me this just had a lot of golden age sensibility exposition like moving from one beat to the next to the next to the next without like stopping to think about all of these consequences to me this book is summed up at the very end you have given power rings to the entire Justice League. Wonder Woman, Superman, and The Flash all have power rings, and nothing cool happens. Yeah, this book is a lot of ideas and no follow-through. Exactly. That was my number one note reading this and thinking about it. So many ideas, so little exploration. This is another book that makes me think that we were too hard on Holy Terror. Uh, because Holy Terror had all these ideas, but it's, it fleshed out its world. It, sh- it sure did. Holy Terror, you beautiful, bizarre little baby. <laughs> you monkey astronaut, you. Yeah. This is a lot of, oh, and now me, Two-Face and Evil star together. Me... Catwoman and Star Sapphire together meet Sinestro and Joe Chill, who dress like the Joker for some reason. And suddenly in this world, for some reason, Superman didn't become Superman. It was just Clark Kent. There's a lot of let's keep throwing stuff out there versus spending a lot of spending time digging into Bruce's psychology receiving the power ring and dealing with that is bruce gonna confront the guardians or is he just gonna like kind of just be grumpy with them harvey dent i wanted more with harvey dent and with gordon there's one really good scene between the bat lantern and gordon and then gordon is almost immediately killed off right after that And I would have liked more of that Gordon's back and forth with Batman about absolute power corrupting. And to see more of Bruce struggling with absolute power. But yeah, it's just him just kind of being grumpy when the Guardians try to call him off world. He's like, no, I got to take care of Earth. And Sinestro is here and I don't want to go get somebody else to handle it. 
it's not a real conflict that you can get invested in. And this is a Batman who is probably second only to the speeding bullets Batman in his deep survivor's guilt. This is a Batman who narrates this entire book to Thomas. He's talking to his dad the entire book and feels so terrible about having not been able to save his parents. And dude was eight. Batman, even if he can't get past the death of his parents, should be able to get beyond the fact that there's no way he could have stopped a grown man with a gun. Yeah, that was... um... Uh, oh, 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 we can do this. We can tease the bonus content that these freeloaders are not going to get a chance to listen to until they pony up. But that was one of the interesting things from Batman Unburied. You had a Batman who had grown beyond his grief and he was trying to figure out what that meant. You know, he says, I went out one night on patrol and I didn't think about Thomas and Martha. What does that mean? Does that mean that Batman is dead? Does that mean that I am dead? Or does that mean that I'm processing this like an adult? I was deeply affected by the death of my father. And not, not to say that the death of my mother did not make me sad, but he, he was my hero. He was my friend. He was the person in the world who understood how my brain worked and, and appreciated for me. He gave me my love of Star Trek. Do I think about him every day? No, I don't. But I miss him at some core level every day. That was an interesting beat in that story. Unburied. Sign up, listen to us talk about it. But yeah, you're right. Here it is first and foremost in his mind. As you're right, he's narrating to Thomas. And that just makes the end all that weirder when he says, all right, dad, I got to blow the planet. Uh, I got to go hunt down Sinestro for, I don't know, the rest of my life. It was a weird anticlimax at, at the end. Like Sinestro got away and Batman leaves not only Gotham, but Earth. And does it feel like th- that ending that, okay, this is setting up a sequel that never happened because the Guardians are there like, yeah, we got what we wanted. You manipulated this whole thing to get Batman off Earth or after Sinestro or I don't get what you're getting at there. It was all a test. Aha. Yeah. It was an odd way to end this story. And it's a downer of an ending. Alfred sacrifices himself for Batman. And why exactly? I mean, Alfred knew Sinestro had booby trapped the, the lantern. Why did he have to set it off instead of just waiting there quietly when Bruce came back to recharge his ring? Be like, Master Bruce, don't. It's a trap. Uh, I guess because somebody had to spring the trap. I, I, I don't know. That, that, that was a weird beat for sure. We like Son of the Demon. Son of the Demon is wacky 80s action movie Batman. Yeah, it's Batman Rambo. Yeah. I don't know exactly what this is. But it's not, I don't, I, yeah, I, I can't place what Barr is trying to get at thematically here. I don't really know if there is a theme. It's just like, like we said, it's all of these unexplored ideas. What is Gotham without Joker? 
and okay so you you establish you know batman one of his, his first night out as this bat lantern he stops the red hook he stops the creation of the joker it would have been interesting if you kind of dealt with that as opposed to sinestro you know when he goes inside joe chill's mind and somehow the two minds merge and he becomes this two minds in one body talking at each other and starts dressing like the joker why did that make him a joker analog all of a sudden and why is that like talking to himself bit dropped eventually (laughs) this book reeks of because the plot demanded it (laughs) that we don't get a ton of character motivation you don't get a ton of deep introspection you get we're moving the plot along exposition 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 yeah throwing selena in as this star sapphire catwoman hybrid out of nowhere this opens with year one this opens with bruce having come back from that first night out in the study bleeding and broken and getting ready to call alfred for help when the lantern ring comes in and he references remembering selena from that first night but without any background there without any reason as to why she's doing this there's not any foundation upon which a lot of this is built yeah and this would have been better had it been infinitely more simple if this had just been year one plus a power ring you could have explored more of the relationship with gordon you could have explored how does a Batman who has been trained, you know, he's he's done his sojourn across the world. He's gotten, you know, the the Harvey Harris. He's gotten the uh, martial arts training. And now in the canon, he's met Ghostmaker. How does giving the power ring to Bruce at this moment in his life, how does that affect the early career of Batman? Can he eventually make peace with Gordon? What does Harvey Dent think of him? What is Gotham like without Joker? Does Joe Care go on to live his life? Does he run for city council? You know, these are some interesting things you could explore, but this really, it goes off the rails as soon as you introduce Sinestro and make him, you know, Bruce has this line, the man that I hate most on the planet and the man who hates me the most in the universe. Like, ah, come on. That's so weak. So weak. This might have been served better as two issues. Issue one is the year one issue, the Batman part of it. And issue two is him having dealt with Gotham and then having to go off into space and deal with the Sinestro stuff. And it would have given both halves the time to breathe a little more. But there's so much disjointed random scenes here that it feels... Like, there's no weight to anything. Sinestro killing Jim Gordon, giving him a heart attack. I should have felt more for Jim there because he's Jim Gordon. I should have felt more when Sinestro turns Harvey into Two-Face. But neither of them were really characters. They were voicing points of view. And there's a bit where Dent is like, What could that power be in the hands of someone who would use it better? That never goes anywhere. Harvey just gets turned into Evil Star, and that's that. 
you don't get any of the two-facedness there. There are a couple of lines where he makes like two jokes, I think. But yeah, that's it. Sure. I just feel like this was a neat idea that DC was like, you know, yeah, oh, hey, you guys did Son of the Demon. People like that. Oh, Batman with a power ring? That's a cool idea. Go for it. And it just doesn't go anywhere. And it feels like it was set up for a sequel that never happened. And so this book sits as a relic. And again, I want to highlight the fact this book gives a power ring to Wonder Woman, Superman, and The Flash. And nothing happens. They're wearing variations on their costumes with Green Lantern symbols. And they don't use the rings. They use their powers. I mean, I wasn't even sure if they had rings. I think they do because, again, they're they're lantern emblazoned. I'm not 100% sure what the Guardian's endgame was in doing this. Because if you're sending Kilowog, Tumar, Ray, Katma Twee, and Aresia to pick up Batman... Was the league there just to backstop Batman to take out Sinestro? I guess, maybe. Again, the Guardians are like, our plan came together. It's like, what plan, you manipulative dicks? <laughs> As in all things, the Guardians are manipulative dicks. No getting yeah. around that. No, they, they are awful. They remain awful. They are protectors of the stat of their own status quo and never want anything to change beyond their own universe inflicted order and yeah i do not like the guardians of the universe fucking space courts and their space cops mm-hmm. weird book with no ending we done here yeah i think we are that means it's time to put Batman and Darkest Night on the big board. Oh, boy. Holy Terror should be much higher than it is. It should be. Because I want this below Holy Terror. Well, clearly. But I look at some of the stuff above Holy Terror, and it's like, Holy Terror belongs above a whole bunch of this stuff. Holy Terror belongs at least 10 spots higher than it is more than that frankly like holy yeah, terror it's... is down at 113 holy terror should probably be in the upper like right around 100 i feel like even that's too low but i'll i'll say this for for darkest night it beats the blue the gray and the bat yeah at oh, 131 yeah. oh it, oh no it's not down in that that because it's not offensive it's not offensive. So it's, I think, somewhere between 113 and 122 is where we start getting to stuff that is offensive or just plain bad. Last Batman story belongs a little higher because it's neither <laughs> of those things. Last Batman story should probably be 122 above Days of Rage where we start getting into the stuff that's like, oh, that's just bad. And that's offensive. Hey, hey that's what you get for false advertising. Okay. okay? I'll give you that. Okay. I think this falls in that between Holy Terror and Days of Rage. This might be right above Days of Rage. 121, Batman Mastered the Future. Another Elseworlds, but this is an Elseworlds. This is one of those Batman without Batman. 48 pages and there's like 
12 pages of Batman and a lot of Bruce Wayne moping about not being Batman anymore. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I am I am done with being Batman. Oh, changed my mind. Yeah, I actually think this is better than that. I think I would still take this over that. Because at least the, yeah. Jerry, the Jerry Bingham art is also nice. We didn't t- talk about it particularly, but it's nice art. Not not great, but but solid. So it's above 121. Is it above Superman's Secret Kingdom? That one issue of World's Finest where Superman becomes king of the lost uh, Inca tribe. Oof. Maybe this then is the new 120. Yeah, because I don't I wouldn't put it above Beware of Poison Ivy. Uh, for all of its problems, that's at least kind of fun. It's readable. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is our new 120. Okay. And Matt, I'm going to to put forth this idea. I truly think, because in the back of this thing, we have a preview of White Knight number one. <laughs> I know. Uh, I saw that. I have that in my notes. What else? Uh, and we have we have a house ad for Doomsday Clock. God. There might have been something else too. Was there another house ad? Uh, yeah, for uh, Warren Ellis's return to uh, the Wildstorm. This is the most cursed thing we've read. Yeah, this is this is something else, everyone. Our final story is Fear of the Dark. This is Batman Dawnbreaker number one. The writer is Sam Humphrey with art by Ethan Van Skyver. Colors by Jason Wright. Letters by Todd Klein. Edited by Tom Napolitano. Eddie Berganza and Andrew Marino with a cover date of December of 2017. In the heart of the dark multiverse, witness the birth of the Dawnbreaker, a Batman with a power ring and no inhibitions who embraces the darkness within himself. So yeah, uh, well, Eddie Berganza, we've already talked about, but the major big time, holy shit, problematic creator watch is on the aforementioned Ethan Van Skyver. Van Skyver is the grand poobah of Comics Gate. This guy is a homophobe, a transphobe, a misogynist. I would rarely use this word to describe people. He's, You're about to make Matt swear. No, it's not even a swear. He's evil. Oh, shit. God damn. He furthers hate yeah as his brand yeah his brand is embracing hate and he is so toxic that he can no longer get mainstream comic work because he fucked around with this shitty online community and he has this is probably the last thing he will ever do with dc it's up there there might be let's go to the videotape so to speak and check because this guy was a Big time artist for DC for a long friggin' time. Primarily on Lantern, if uh, if I'm not mistaken. That was his biggest. Yeah, he, he did some Batman here and there. Way more Batman in his background than I, I like. A lot of work with Jeff Johns. Shock of shocks. <laughs> um, but yeah, looking at this, this might, you might be right. I think you're right. This is probably his last mainstream work with dc because he did some of the rebirth the the rebirth one shot in 2016 and then there's this in 2017 and 
Oh, I guess he did some issues of the Rebirth, Hal Jordan, and the Green Lantern Corps, which fell into 2018. But that's that's about it. So that's at least four years since his exile was complete, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I know has uh, has no one to blame but himself. Asshole. Yeah. Blech. Sam Humphreys, the writer, was the writer of Green Lantern book at the time, I believe. As most of these, uh, the Dark Knight metal, Dark Knight's one-shots were written by creators involved with those books. As I just said, this was part of Dark Knight's metal. The Dawnbreaker is one of the seven evil Batman, Bat people, who were the the metal. A good, good correction. Yeah, because there's at least one that is. The Drowned. The Drowned, who is female presenting. And I think the cyborg the the red death was the the flash excuse me murder machine was cyborg i don't even know if there's any human left in the the murder machine i think he's possibly just memory engram in you know a robot body at that point so i don't know if he qualifies as a batman quote unquote this is one of these one shots that gives us the background of these dark bats And the beginning of this establishes the first page that this is a dark multiverse version of Earth-32. Earth-32, one of the 52 Earths, is the Earth that was derived from in Darkest Night. It is the Earth of fused heroes. So this actually thematically ties in with the last story. Interesting. Okay. It's different. A lot of those Earths that are based on Elseworlds kind of take that initial kernel and extrapolate further, but it takes like a core concept, like this is an Earth where every hero is two heroes fused together and creates new characters around that. Like there's the Super Martian, who's Superman and Martian Manhunter fused into one character. There's, I believe, an Aquaman Flash hybrid, a Wonder Woman Hawk Woman hybrid. And the Bat Lantern. So this is the dark earth of an earth that spins out of the core concept of In Darkest Night. So these are actually kind of paired in that way. And a good call, Will, for suggesting we do this instead of the uh, Jeff Johns Green Lantern story where Batman wields a power ring that I actually also believe is a Van Skyver drawn issue, but with Jeff Johns on story. So that one would be even more cursed. Yeah, well... I mean, you got Braganza here and you got a big old Sean Gordon Murphy preview in the back. So So here, Bruce receives the power ring as he does in, in Darkest Night. But here he gets the ring the night his parents were killed. Immediately he, following their death. Yeah. So he is eight years old and full of rage. So it actually takes a little bit of In Darkest Night and a little bit of speeding bullets because the minute he gets the ring, what does he do? He just kills the fuck out of Joe Chill. After overloading his power ring. Yeah, he pushes through the ring's no-kill protocols with willpower exceeding 100%, exceeding what the ring is capable of, which... That part's kind of cool that his willpower is so strong that he is beyond what the Guardians could have predicted. Like that, but he's a homicidal little monster. Yeah, he uh, he broke the holodeck safety protocols. 
whenever it's convenient for the plot. I think Humphreys does a good enough job here. My main complaint with the story is that it's so thin. You know, we get basically under 20 pages of content in this 30 page book. Almost half of it is the white night preview, the house ads covers whatnot. And I will say a touching tribute to Lynn Wayne. Uh, So there is at least one good thing in this book, but Aside from that brief little origin, which you don't you don't really need a lot of exposition on, and a couple of scenes with Gordon, a little nugget that this version of Batman killed Harvey Bullock for just basically being mean to him. That's it. That's the only place where this story goes. And it's really underwhelming, especially compared to Red Death, which I think got into a much more of a core emotional place was, as I recall, a much more interesting read. Now, on second glance, maybe it's not as good as I remember, but this story-wise doesn't do it for me. And then we can have an entirely different discussion about the art. Yeah, that strikes me as what they wanted this, wanted to be the selling point of this book was letting Van Skyver cut loose and personality aside, and we can say anything, we've already said plenty about that. I've never been a huge fan of Von Skyver's art. And so these ugly sort of super deformed shadow demon things that he's drawing here don't really do it for me. It's the same here. And I think it's a problem of two things. One, the inks. And the colors, you lose all of the detail as they're all kind of rendered in this kind of dishwater green color. You lose any definition, you lose any kind of clarity on whatever it is exactly you're looking at. This is Green Lantern meets Lovecraftian horror. If you're going to give me a demon construct, I want to be able to fucking see it. I want to be able to see the the tentacles and the teeth and the, the you know all of the sharp pointy gooey bits. All of that is lost in the art. Yeah, and so he can somehow sort of pull things out of some sort of horrifying shadow realm. I, I'm assuming the same sort of shadow realm that the shade and other shadow wielding characters draw their dark constructs from but it's never really touched on or is it just a corruption of the green energy i don't entirely know yeah and- this uh, this lantern just calls it the blackout or the ring refers to it as blackout and we lose also the last three or four pages that could have been used to flesh out the world in a setup for other stuff going on in metal where it's like, okay, we're going to send this guy to coast city and he's going to fight Hal Jordan and Hal Jordan is going to be rescued by Dr. Fate. And it's going to shunt him off to the next phase of the story. Yeah. I remember as I was trying to, to read and process this event, Snyder was going so deep, like the main, you know, dark Knights story is basically incomprehensible to me 
I was really interested with these one shots because they're fairly digestible. And this is, is too much in service of the main event. And, you know, like I've already said, just doesn't do enough with these concepts. Yeah, because there's a, a mini crossover amongst Justice League related titles that this drops Jordan into that the Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps issue there, which that might be the final Van Skyver DC work. If you ever want to go back and understand why the Batman Who Laughs took off, you should read the Batman Who Laughs one shot from these series of one shots from Tinian and Riley Rossmo. Because that explains so much about why that character took off because it is a great one shot. Oh my God. What a story that was that, that scene in the Batcave, man. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a moment. Yeah. And another recall, the red death one does. I remember the red death one being really another solid one. Oh yeah, uh, Carmine Gian Domenico, who's been drawing the night, did the art on that one. So it's it's got a, a stronger creative team. All of these are so absolutely mean. Also, what's the, what do you think the timeline is here? I mean, has he really been this homicidal monster for a decade plus, or is he still eight years old? I don't entirely know how the timeline on this worked because he looks young and then he suddenly seems to just kind of age. Yeah. He goes from eight to, I don't know, tween, teen, teen, I'd say. So he's been this Batman for a number of years. I don't entirely know how he made it this many years without the guardians being like, uh, we need to take care of this. As long, I guess as long as he stays on his little backwater planet and is just killing people there, then we're okay with it. That doesn't really strike me as the Guardians of the Universe's thing. Yeah, it's not until he kills Gordon that the Lanterns are like, hey, all right, bud, you've, you've crossed a line. You got to stop this. All of the killing. Yeah, I don't get a lot of what is going on here. And in the end, he is... As with the previous Batman from In Darkest Night, seriously fixated on his parents. The the Batman who laughs gets him and recruits him by promising him Thomas and Martha back. That Barbatos will give him his parents back when they have conquered the regular multiverse. And he's just a very stunted version of Batman. I will say probably the only bit of the the story that I I really thought was, I don't know, engaging was Bruce gets the power ring. And after he vaporizes slash melts Joe Chill, the next thing is he reanimates Thomas and Martha. And that was very creepy. And that maybe got at the the horror kind of scary thing that uh, Darkest Night hinted at in its its trade dress. This tries to be a horror book. And the story doesn't forward the horror. It's just got some kind of gross art. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's it, the art is not rendered in such a way as to give the horror a visceral feel. Yeah, not good. I don't have much else to add beyond just not good. Yeah, not good. So that means 
it's time to put Batman the Dawnbreaker on the big board. So are we, we have. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no. I was going to say uh, we have got to go below uh, the Grim Knight at 108 because yes. while that was not officially one of these one shots, it was for all intents and purposes one of these one shots that just came in that Batman Who Laughs miniseries. Right. Now, the question is, is this below in Darkest Night? While I do my best to separate out when, when looking at rankings as creator from created, I would find it very hard to put anything by Van Skyver above the, the dregs of the list. Agreed. This is in, I think, Gotham by Gaslight territory at 126 in that it's got interesting ideas that just they don't do anything with them. In Darkest Night had tons and tons and tons of interesting ideas. At least it had a quantity. This doesn't have quantity or quality. The page count here is so, so low. I, I look at it, I'm trying to say, it's offensive because of who created it. The, there's no particularly offensive content in the story, but that's probably because Vince Giver didn't write it. He just drew a Sam Humphreys script. So you think in... You think it may be between Gotham by Gaslight and Earth One at 133? Yeah, that I, I was even going to say between Gotham by Gaslight and the Blue, the Gray, and the Bat, 132. So, One Night in Gotham City, Man of Steel number three, from John Byrne, a creator who has espoused similar unpleasant thoughts, but is in itself a much more problematic script it has a lot of misogyny baked into that story uh remind me about that one magpie first batman superman post-crisis meeting batman has a bomb in his belt ah yeah oh it's gonna kill an innocent person oh i was surprised it was gonna be me i can't put this above the last batman story because false advertising aside the last batman story is a better story than this yeah yeah i would put it below batman 550 because that was not terribly offensive it was just terribly boring yes i think that probably is the spot because although honestly the blue the gray and the bat while that dark knights thing is offensive it's almost well intentioned just tone deaf like that really felt like see i'm doing something good here it's like no dude no you're not cowboy batman with a gun though yeah okay true. and uh and and tonto robin and that was supposed to be a hero dawnbreaker is a villain and is absolutely the story knows he's the villain so new 132 then right below chasing clay and above the blue the gray in the back by a hair well, thus ended our streak of really good stories. Yeah, we've had some good episodes lately, and this was not, not one of them. Hopefully, next week will be better. Because next week, we get the second request from Jason Todd Tierbacker and friend of the show and my co-host on my other show and my best friend of 30 years, Dan Grote. He specifically wanted us to talk about Batman Digital Justice, 
And so we're doing Digital Justice and two other tales of Batman in the future. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, including Dan Grove, but also June, conduit of outdated joke names. June, come on, you're killing us. <laughs> Joshua Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaugh. Aha! <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>